You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. I don't know if you know this, Wade, but in some states, seeing and believing has been registered as a lethal weapon. You know, Kevin, it makes me long for the days when this podcast wasn't registered as a lethal weapon. Then, if the episode accidentally killed somebody, it wouldn't go to jail. Well, unfortunately, that is no longer the case, so everyone who's listening right now, stay safe. Today in the episode, we review the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the second film we're going to be reviewing features a lot fewer Bruce Lee reenactments, but it does feature danger of a different kind. That would be the indie film about snake handlers in Appalachia, Them That Follow. It's Serpents and the year 1969, coming up on this episode, episode 211 of Seeing and Believing. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick stunt double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. My hands are registered as lethal weapons. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. Yes, we are here, episode 211. And you know, last week, Kevin, we visited the year 1969 to talk about my favorite film of the year, Apollo 11. And now we get to go back to 1969. It's a record here at Seeing and Believing, and hopefully we'll keep it up next week. I don't know what we're reviewing right now, but (laughs) we'll see. We'll see how it goes. You know, Wade, I don't know how many more films about the summer of 1969 that this year can sustain, but we can always hope that more films do make it into contention for your number one of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we'll definitely check out uh, that. And yeah, it, I mean, it is fascinating, just this 50-year anniversary of this life-changing, world-changing summer in so many respects. Well, the time has finally come, Kevin. We're finally reviewing on this episode of Seeing and Believing, Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We've been looking forward to it for a while. I don't know, maybe I should put a disclaimer here, right? The film is technically titled Once Upon a Time dot 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 in Hollywood. Now, I think that maybe tells you a little bit about what this movie is trying to do, so I'll throw that out there. So here's the movie's official synopsis. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood visits 1969 Los Angeles, where everything is changing, as TV star Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his longtime stunt double, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, make their way around an industry 
they hardly recognize anymore. A tribute to the final moments of Hollywood's golden age, Once Upon a Time explores multiple storylines, including a handful surrounding the infamous Manson family, as well as one of their murder victims, the actress Sharon Tate, played here by Margot Robbie. Now, I won't name the rest of the cast because pretty much every actor in Hollywood plays in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, including Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern, Al Pacino, and Kurt Russell. Kevin, I usually set a reminder on my phone not to log into social media immediately after a Tarantino release because, like the ending of his films, it usually gets pretty ugly, people debating the film, was it good, was it bad? I would, however, love to hear about your reaction to the movie. Did you come out of the theater passionately loving it or passionately hating it, like most of the critics that I know? You're right that it does tend to get a little bit hairy out there when it comes to Tarantino's films. They do tend to be controversial, and he does seem to very intentionally court that controversy, especially with those of his films that tend to present a kind of revisionist take on history where in a way he seeks to use cinema as sort of a time machine to go back and rectify the atrocities and horrors of the past or get some sort of revenge on them or present us with some sort of catharsis that we always want from the story, our stories and our histories, but rarely ever get. So I was expecting much of the same from this film, going into it and seeing something very in-your-face that seeks to redress or at least revisit the atrocity of the Manson murders. And what I encountered wasn't really what I expected. This is a film that is much more elegiac than I'm used to seeing from Tarantino. There's less... There's less violence in this film. There's, there's in general, a lot less of what we tend to expect from a Tarantino film. Lots of dialogue-heavy lines where he flaunts his writerly prowess. Lots of snappy editing. Uh, this film is very technically polished, but it seems to be a little bit of a departure or an evolution of his typical style. The other thing that surprised me about this film was that I was expecting to come out of it either really liking it or really hating it. And instead, I kind of walked out feeling a little bit lukewarm about it. I I don't think it's his most successful film. I don't think it's his worst film. But I have to be honest, I was a little bit disappointed by it. And we can get into why a little bit later. But I'm curious to know what your reaction was to it as well, Way, given that this is... A Tarantino film, it can be divisive. So tell me, did you come into it passionately hating or passionately loving it? <laughs> well, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of mixed on Tarantino. There are some films that I really do like and some that I don't. I, I've probably gone on the record before talking about Pulp Fiction. I just, I probably don't get it like other people do get it. But there are some movies from him that I think are, are really, I think they're fantastic. I walked out of this film really digging it. I had I had a, a good time, if that's okay to say, about a Tarantino film. And it does feel like an evolution for him. It feels like a 
a more mature work for him. And specifically, I was kind of going into this movie wondering how someone who has this encyclopedic knowledge of movie history would make a movie about making movies. This is the first time he's done that in his career. And he recreates 1969 meticulously. And and when I say recreates, this is a a semi-realistic version of 1969, obviously. But it's one of those, it's one of those depictions that I just enjoyed hanging out in. And it's good because most of the characters in this film spend a lot of time hanging out. There's this kind of reoccurring, uh, I guess, cycle or instance where, where people are just kind of driving around in cars and they're just listening to music from that era. And we're, we're getting to look at Los Angeles in this time period. And I just, I loved those scenes. And I think what Tarantino does here, he doesn't give us any easy answers, but I think I walked out at least kind of understanding or grappling with what he wants me to kind of think through as I'm watching his picture. So yeah, I liked it. I'll get into some more later on, but I think it's a pretty successful movie. I don't I wouldn't say it's his best, but it's it's definitely up there. It's it's maybe second or third uh, in terms of my favorite from him. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about this being in some ways kind of like a hangout film, or at least a lot of this film's aims are to situate us in more or less a grounded uh, version of 1969 Hollywood and Los Angeles, the surrounding area, and kind of observe the end of an era like or maybe the transition of an era from a certain era of hollywood filmmaking and cultural american culture in general to a different era um i think that that is definitely tarantino's aim here i do think that it maybe could have used a little bit less of that kind of meandering hangout vibe that that you mentioned just now for me it felt a little bit aimless, and at least as somebody who doesn't feel any particularly strong nostalgia for the era that Tarantino is recreating here, I didn't find that the elegy was quite as powerful for me, and I didn't find that the way that he approaches the central subject of the Manson murders and his own little spin that he puts on those events, I didn't find that that was... A psychic scar on the same level as, say, uh, American slavery in Django Unchained or Nazi Germany in Inglorious Bastards. The events that Tarantino is describing in those films uh, are more of a, they're, they're a more significant scar on kind of the collective human psyche than what he's presenting. In this film, not that these events that he's seeking to address weren't, in their own way, uh, horrible and, in a lot of ways, reshaped the way that American society saw itself and kind of thought in general about the world. But it did feel like it was missing a little something. There's not the same level of energy to this film that I feel in the rest of Tarantino's films, good and bad. And I guess for me, that felt like a little bit of a letdown. 
I exited the film wondering, well, am I just not getting it or is there just not that much to get? And I think I'm leaning towards the latter a little bit. I don't really sense the same purpose and the same frisson of energy that I get from Tarantino's other films. And that felt a little disappointing to me. I I mean, I think the film does kind of wander around a little bit. And it does lack some of that direct purpose that you would see in a film like maybe Jackie Brown. And I get what you're saying. It's it's not that there are no stakes, but he was taking on slavery in Django Unchained, or he was taking on anti-Semitism in Inglorious Bastards. And here, it's more general. It's it's a straightforward. It's a it's a murder that he's talking about. And I think though that this kind of wandering nature of the movie works because at the heart of it, this is a movie about individuals who feel fragile, individuals who lack purpose, individuals who are just kind of wandering through life hoping they can get what they don't have or at least keep what they do have. And at the center of this is Brad Pitt's character and Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And I like just spending time with them. And and perhaps this is what good actors do. You just kind of watch them do whatever. And I enjoy just watching them uh, go about their day. Brad Pitt, he plays this character who's kind of a gopher for Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And Leonardo DiCaprio, he's stuck doing uh, guest spots on television shows. And essentially, this is this is three days in their lives and we get to just kind of watch them and it seems as if tarantino is is saying something about this particular industry and the precarious nature of fame you got dicaprio's character and and he left a popular television show to make it as a big movie star and he just can't he just can't do it and he's worried, oh, if I play th- you know, these roles, then the audience will see me as this. And then you have Brad Pitt's character, who is a stuntman, and he doesn't get much work. And he's kind of just trying to, to make it. He's along for the ride. And in the midst of that, we do get these moments where characters are just, they're just kind of cruising. And it seems to me that Tarantino is essentially saying, that these moments of success, these highs, um, even lows, what we have here today is not going to be here for a very long time. So we just kind of need to live in the moment. And this film, I think, in my opinion, kind of lives in that moment. And it really worked for me. I mean, I agree with you that those that thread that you, you're talking about a about the the idea of a certain era passing away and of the the people who thrived in that era finding themselves growing less relevant as they grow older is really compelling. One of my favorite scenes in the entire film is when uh, Rick uh, DiCaprio's character is in his trailer after just having a catastrophically bad. Uh, 
scene in a movie that he's filming and he's sitting there and he's just berating himself at the top of his lungs. And, you know, he's, he's embarrassed. He's angry at himself. He's angry at kind of a world that seems unfair to him. And it's really, it's funny to watch him let loose like that, but it's also a really good performance. And there's also this undercurrent of melancholy that uh, Tarantino understands this, this character really well. And he, he films him in a way that uh, exposes him to us and allows us to care for him. And in a lot of ways, I do think that this film is probably Tarantino's warmest film, or at least one of his warmest films. It might be tied with Jackie Brown for that title. But Tarantino seems a lot more interested in his character's uh, inner struggles and just the way they feel about the world around them more so than he is interested in typically what he's interested in his other films, which is kind of bringing the power of cinema to bear and doing something uh, big and splashy with the story that he's telling. So this is a very, in a lot of ways, human film for Tarantino. I think, though, that those scenes that we're talking about where it does have that more low-key vibe doesn't really gel very well with the ostensibly central subject matter of this film, which is the Manson murders and the the fact that the killing of Sharon Tate is sort of the cloud that is hovering over this entire picture. We know what happens to her. Uh, we know what happens you know, what, what the Manson family did. And when we see the, the Manson family on screen or when we see Sharon Tate on screen, we can't help but think about what is coming. And in a lot of ways, that thread is justified by the climax where Tarantino, like I said, presents his spin on that event. But I don't think that that's actually what is most interesting about this world that Tarantino is bringing us into. I think mo- I'm mostly interested in the the characters who find themselves growing increasingly obsolete in a Hollywood that is moving on. There's a montage uh, towards the end of the film that kind of kicks off the third act where Tarantino just cuts between various shots of neon signs lighting up along the strip or these restaurants that the various characters are at, those lights coming on. And there's a sense that these shots that Tarantino is giving us are recreating a world that has gone by, that is no longer with us. And there's a genuine emotion to that that I don't think is really... um, He doesn't really keep that going with the, the climax of this film, which I think frankly, is even though this is probably the least violent of Tarantino's films overall, this the, the violence that eventually breaks out at the end of this film feels the most in poor taste to me and feels like the biggest betrayal of what Tarantino has been doing with the rest of his picture. That That's really fascinating. See, I... I there's definitely the sense that if you, you need to come into this film knowing about the Manson murders. And I think most people who watch this probably have some sort of idea of that because the film wants that event 
to hang over us like a cloud. It's essentially saying, hey, times are changing and they're about to change really, really fast. That destiny awaits. And we even get kind of references, you know, Easy Rider. Easy Rider is that film that changes everything in Hollywood. Hey, you know, they start wanting to make Hollywood executives start wanting to make a bunch of easy writers because, oh man, you know, we can make a lot of money with this type of movie. And so we get the sense that, hey, everything's kind of changing and that it's going to be quote unquote a, a bloodbath in many senses and that this old guard will be gone. It's as if they they are literally gone because of the new breed of filmmakers that are coming into the system. And so just that event hanging over their heads, I think that, that works pretty well. And it also highlights the idea of, of, of destiny and of free will and of control. When you're watching a normal biopic or a film that's documenting a historic event, there is this dread because we know we can't change it and we know what's coming. By now, though, we know with Tarantino that what we, what we read about in history might not be coming. And so you're grappling with the idea of destiny, where these characters are, are headed, and then do they have that agency to change history? Is that possible? I, also, too, with I want to get into the violence. I, I I think here with Tarantino is his film is is very rich in many senses. So I've heard just kind of theologically speaking that his films are in uh, the the incarnation. They're incarnational, and that they really highlight this physicality. And we see that especially you know in his movies, but here too with food, dog food, regular food, this, that, and the other, and. It definitely plays into the end of the movie as we talk about that violence and as this reckoning in Hollywood is coming and in his own way, he makes this big splash on the screen that things are changing and there are multiple possibilities. I So I think, I think the violence uh, works, especially too because we go into this film and we, we – Tarantino presents it as not real. So you can watch these biopics and they're, they're saying, in a sense, there's like, well, we're sticking to the story. We're sticking to the essence of the story. And I think it's really easy to take that and to mischaracterize a historical event. I think with Tarantino, his over the topness at times lets us know, hey, what you're watching isn't real. What I'm trying to do is to get you to think about what is real. And so I, I, I think he threads that needle pretty well in this movie. Part, part of the elegiac tone that I mentioned earlier is in some ways he, he's creating myths with all of his films. He's telling stories that help us make sense of the way we, we see our history uh, and the way we think of ourselves as a culture. That's kind of the role of all myth. And he's very consciously doing that in this film as well, in especially with that last shot, which is shot from the God's eye angle. He shoots the, the characters from overhead, and you get the sense that this is almost Tarantino like a creator looking down benevolently on uh, some of his creations and inviting us to kind of see them that way too. Like, this isn't real, but here's a world I, I've created 
where maybe some things can can be okay or maybe uh some closure that we might have wanted uh out of real life maybe we find some of that in this this reality that Tarantino has given us through cinema and i think that he is trying to very consciously weave that spell in this film and I appreciate the effort, and it's all done with a, an artfulness and maturity, for the most part, that I appreciate. I think the the problem is, though, that that gentler kind of myth-making, frankly, it's not what Tarantino is, is best at. He's kind of at his best when he is being a little bit less restrained, and through that lack of restraint is really forcing us to confront uh, some of these myths that we hold about ourselves head on. I think that's one reason why I appreciated The Hateful Eight so much is that that was not at all a restrained picture. It was ugly, it was violent, and it was misanthropic. But what I appreciated about that was ter- within that excess, Tarantino located uh, an issue that very much needs to be addressed, sort of how America thinks of itself. And in a lot of ways, he's doing something similar with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he is locating a moment in history where our idea about ourselves changed, or at least America went through a transition period. But I don't think that he does it as successfully in this picture, mainly because there's a disconnect between that benevolent overhead final shot that I mentioned earlier and the the violence that we see in the climax. It, the, the violence almost feels like slapstick when it's placed, when it's juxtaposed with this more elegiac tone, whereas in something like The Hateful Eight, it felt much more of a piece with the, with the entire film. You know, I... I would I would disagree. I, th- I think that it does work well, but I am I am surprised, and you're kind of hitting on it too. There is this gentler side of Tarantino, this longing, and perhaps it's because it it feels like Tarantino. It feels like he wants to go back to 1969 here, and so with the Hateful Eight or something, it's you know this is this rough and tough world, but there's something about Hollywood and learning about and watching movies with all these incredible stars and then recreating that. And Tarantino feels at home here. And so there's this, there's this sequence where they go into the Playboy Mansion. And as we're watching that, it, it almost feels like Tarantino is telling us, hey, I wish I could do this. I wish I could go back here. And then you get this moment. And I think it's one of the the gracious, more gentler moments in all of his filmography. And it's when Robbie's character, uh, Sharon Tate, goes to a movie, and she she actually goes to a movie that she's starring in, and she's watching it and just kind of waiting for the audience to react and waiting for them to, to laugh. Will they laugh at the funny parts? Will they cheer at the parts where, you know, she achieves victory in the movie? And... I felt like it were scenes like that, that, you know, I walked into the movie knowing about Sharon Tate, and even though I know this isn't her, and this scene probably didn't happen, and he's recreating this, this, and this, it made me feel for that character more than I have before, that individual person, that that historical person. 
because it felt like this was a character who had hopes and who had dreams and wanted to be successful and was at the cusp of that, was at the beginning of that. And then simultaneously, you have Rick Dalton's character who pines for that recognition so much that when he's given it by a small child, it's this moment of, it's funny and it's beautiful because it, it hits him where it needs to hit him. Uh, so the, just a number of things I like about this film. I think this is Brad Pitt's probably best performance uh, probably since Tree of Life. And he's one of my favorites, I think, because he just offers this presence. And we're hanging out with him, and he's not doing too much. He's not over the top. But he is a presence in this picture. And then too, uh, Kevin, I just think this is, I think this is a hilarious movie. I think it's funny from beginning to end. We alluded to the fight scene between, uh, between Pitt's character, Cliff Booth and Bruce Lee. And it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And just on an entertainment level, I, I really just enjoyed going along for the ride here. And I will say this too, Kevin, I saw a late, I saw a late movie. I saw this late screening of this. It started at 1040. Uh, that was a showtime. It didn't get out to 1:45 AM. And there was this, it was a, it was a full house. People were cheering, people were having fun. And there was this like, uh, elderly couple in their late 70s and they were there and they were awake and into it and talking the whole time and it was just a great experience and it just felt cinematic you know you get all these big blockbuster movies and this and that it just felt like a cinematic picture and maybe that sounds really strange and weird um but maybe that's just the best way i can put it right now this this is a two hour and 40 minutes picture that really does fly by. And I think that that is a testament to Tarantino's craft is that even though at the end of this film, I came out feeling pretty ambivalent about it overall, it does have a fleetness to it that kind of when you get to the end, you're just like, oh, I didn't realize that I'd been sitting here for that long because he does, he is successful in drawing you into this world he's created and at some places he is successful at making you feel a certain level of affection or nostalgia for this time even though you and I and Tarantino himself weren't even alive when when this time period was happening so that much is successful I think Maybe, and this is something that I've seen in conversation about the film elsewhere, it's that it's that violent climax that kind of makes or breaks this movie. Some people will find that it's an appropriate moment of catharsis. Other people might find it a little bit jarring and problematic. And I think I'm in the, the latter camp because in some ways, I guess it clashes with that nostalgic feeling that Tarantino cultivates so lovingly through the rest of the film where you do feel the locale and you do feel you you are really drawn in by the charismatic performances of the cast so that when that moment arrives at least for me I think that it does not work as well either as a moment of catharsis uh, for ourselves knowing the way the Manson murders turned out, or for those of us who were just enjoying being with these characters, it feels, uh, at least to me, a little bit like a betrayal. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the movie again, and I possibly wonder if this whole big climax is more of a hey, we look at golden age Hollywood and we we see it in a particular light, and maybe it's a little bit more violent. Maybe maybe it fights back more than we think it does. Uh, but yeah, I I'm excited about watching it uh, again. Hopefully, I'd love to see it in theater. So we'll see if I can make that happen, listeners. We would love to hear your thoughts about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was looking at the box office uh, records, the results so far, and it looks like this is his Tarantino's most popular opening ever. So that's really fascinating. We'd love to hear what you think about the film. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. That song is Quiet Mind by Fall Dissa. We really appreciate everyone who's taking an opportunity to support us via our Patreon campaign page. You keep the podcast going, allow us to see these movies, and then record the podcast for you. That is something that we are especially thankful for. We've got a couple of levels of donation. One of them I think it's our favorite. We say this every week because it's really important for listeners to know. It is our favorite. It's called the What Can You Buy for $5 donation level. And I'm thinking about that all the time. It's weighing on my mind. Every week, I need to know this answer. And so, Kevin, I, I do want to I want to ask you this. What what could someone hypothetically buy for five bucks? You know, five dollars would get you a custom ringtone that runs you through all of the chief justices of the Supreme Court from the United States inception to the modern day. So if you're wanting to brush up on your knowledge of legal history, that is something that you might find interesting. I I could definitely see that being very helpful. I know there are times when I have trouble making small talk. And so what I usually go to, I usually go to the weather, Kevin, but that's kind of a dud. But what I could do is pull that out and we could talk about the chief justices. Maybe maybe they're John Marshall fans and and you could just kind of go into detail on what he did for the Supreme Court and how you know all that stuff. I think it could be I think it would be an important gift. Well, you have named all of the chief justices of the Supreme Court that I actually know off the top of my head uh, from a time from before I was born. I know obviously the ones that have been chief justices since I've been alive, but other than that, I pretty much know John Marshall, and that's about it. I think, I don't know, wasn't William Howard Taft a chief justice at some point? I don't know. But I guess that's just evidence that this is the custom ringtone that I need, at least. (laughs) (laughs) We're not just telling you what you need. We're telling you what we need 
too. Listeners, we really appreciate you donating. And if you can, we would love it for you to join that What Can You Buy for $5 donation level. It's really easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And $5 won't just get you that ringtone or allow you to become a patron of seeing and believing. It will also allow you to become a member of Christ and pop culture. And this week, Wade, we actually had another entry in KB Hoyle's column that she does for us about storytelling of all types. This one is about Stranger Things season three, which we just did an episode on uh, a couple of weeks ago. And Uh, has a lot of good things to say. That column is called Time in the Telling, How Stories of Time Help Us Grapple with a Fallen World. If you become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, which is also $5 a month, that is the sort of writing that you help support. So definitely check that out if you have the time. Yes, definitely check that out on ChristandPopCulture.com. I know we have a lot of Stranger Things fans, and so that's something that I, I think will be really beneficial as they think about that new season. Once again, you can also tweet us at SeaBeliefPod, SeaBeliefPod. You can also email us your thoughts, whether it's about Stranger Things or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or the film we're going to review here in just a few minutes, Them That Follow. You can send that all to us. See Believe Pod on Twitter or Seeing and Believing C-A-P-C at gmail.com Who you choose, girl, chooses your whole life. My daughter has turned into a fine girl and a good man has asked for her hand. He never laid eyes on something so pure. Where are they gonna make any sense? What's wrestling, Yuko? We are the only thing that makes any sense in this place. When the devil creeps in, you need someone to see the truth even when you don't. We're back with the second half of our show. And wait, I don't think that there is a setting farther removed from the kind of the fame and fortune of 1960s Hollywood than Backwoods Appalachia, but we're going to be pairing a film about that setting with Tarantino's latest <laughs> film today. No, it, it, the settings are, are very different, but I guess we could talk about the underlying sense of fear and paranoia. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, they're two very different settings, uh, two very different films. Well, it's not just the settings that are different different between these two films, but also the scale. The second film that we're reviewing this week is a much smaller film, much more modest in scope. It's the indie film Them That Follow, directed by Britt Poulton and Daniel Savage. And here is the film's official synopsis. Deep in Appalachia, Pastor Lemuel Childs, played by the great Walton Goggins, presides over an isolated community of serpent handlers, an obscure sect of Pentecostals who willingly take up venomous snakes to prove themselves before God. As his devoted daughter Mara prepares for her wedding day, a dangerous secret is unearthed, and she is forced to confront the mysticism and danger that intertwine in the religious beliefs of her community. So, Wade, in a lot of ways, that description of this film sounds like it's tailor-made for discussion on the show. You've got themes of Christianity, of the intersection between religious 
communities and the individual and mysticism and its intersection with religious belief. So given all of those things that are floating around inside this movie, perhaps the question I have for you will seem a little bit straightforward. How successful do you think Them That Follow is at exploring these religious subjects? You know, I think overall, it, it, it's an all right movie. I, I think where the film gets off track is it feels it feels more concerned with the plot of the movie versus the characters, what they believe, what makes them tick outside of just the the general idea, right? So very early on they quote that long passage in in Mark they misinterpret it, right? They're, or they miss, they are misinterpreting it and they're picking up snakes. And this is a very male dominated society. Uh, these characters don't go to the hospital. They, you know, they pray for people instead. And so we get kind of those general facts that we all probably associate with a group like this. But I, I don't think the film ever really dug in deep to, okay, why do they believe this way? And is there any type of, possibly even any spiritual ecstasy that pushes them towards this, what feels like very emotional faith? And I think that's probably why I kind of walked away disappointed in this movie, because it's a tense plot. It really is kind of interesting. I think the acting, for the most part, is pretty good. But I was looking for the movie to kind of dig in a little bit, a little bit deeper here. Yeah, I think that that's that's a fair criticism. I think I might have liked it a little bit more than you, but you're right that there's a certain dimension of the religious beliefs of this community that uh, the filmmakers don't seem particularly interested in digging into in in a deep way, and and we'll get into that a little bit, but. There's a book uh, by Dennis Covington called Salvation on Sand Mountain that's basically about the same topic. The writer goes into this community of snake handlers. He gets to know them. He spends a lot of time with them. And uh, at, towards the end of the book, uh, he talks about his experience when he goes to one of these prayer meetings where the snakes are actually handled. And somebody hands him a snake and he's handling like this rattlesnake himself. And... The way that Covington, the writer, describes that experience is full of, you know, obviously like the, the, the momentary experience of that kind of danger, but also he relates the strange sort of spiritual transcendence that he does personally experience in that moment. And that's what makes the book so fascinating is that complex interplay between him trying to kind of remain detached, almost journalistic in a way, and also the in-the-moment exhilaration of having this contact with with danger and spirituality and almost the ways that those two things are one and the same. And that is something that I do think we find in the climax of Them That Follow. I think that there there's a cross-cutting that the the film makes between kind of this experience that one of the characters has actually handling a snake um, versus a very difficult to watch scene where a different character experiences the consequences from his own failure earlier in the film. And I think that 
that moment shows a sense for what I'm talking about with Covington's book. And I wish it had been more in evidence throughout the rest of the film, because you are right that the the main plot of the film centers on Mara's uh, relationship with the men around her. Uh, this is obviously a very uh, male-dominated subculture that she's a part of. And rather than really getting under the skin of why these these people believe the way they do, the filmmakers kind of seem content to skate along the surface of that and tell a very familiar story, which is about uh, this, this character, Mara, coming to terms with the ways in which she doesn't quite fit in with their preconceptions of what a pastor's daughter should be. And it's interesting enough, but it's all rather rote where we're maybe looking for something that was a little bit more unfamiliar and tries to get under the skin of what actually is this mystical experience that these people claim to have while handling snakes. And it touches on that parts, but it doesn't quite arrive at the at the heart of the matter. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've you know, grew up, been a part of Pentecostal churches, and obviously nothing like this, right? There's a, such a wide variety of types of Pentecostals, and the, the Pentecostal church, in terms of weaknesses, and it's been criticized for this in the past, but certain groups, it, it's this sense that hey, this is an emotional uh, faith, and it's pretty much only that and that we need to you know do some thinking more we need to do more thinking and i i think simultaneously what the pentecostal church has uh, even around the world is this sense that hey there's something greater out there we need more than just physical power we need this kind of supernatural power and so it's the emphasis on the power of the holy spirit and realizing too that we are logical creatures, but we're also emotional creatures. And that Christianity speaks to all of those senses. And I, I think what I was kind of searching for with this particular film is, okay, how does it how does it reveal kind of like what you're talking about, this almost ecstasy within these religious practices? Because obviously these characters, are tied to some sort of transcendent moment or supposed transcendent moment for them to be in this environment. And we get a couple of shots that feel, they don't really feel as authentic. These characters are kind of, you know, worshiping a bit. And of course we get the snake stuff. But for a film about a very emotional faith, we don't see much of the emotion. It's a, a lot of dialogue. It's a, it's a lot of talking. It kind of delves into this forbidden love story, which I, th- which I think could, which I think could work. Uh, but what I was looking at is, hey, put me in that room with these characters. And like you mentioned, when these individuals are kind of holding the snake, we get most of the time fear. And there are a couple of scenes that are very intense because we don't know what's going to happen. But is there a way to simultaneously put ourselves into that person and in this idea of, oh, I'm, I'm kind of living out in what they believe is the Lord's work. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what, what I'm, I'm looking for and trying to be examining with the situation. And we get some moments here, there. There's, there's one, and I, I think, and I think that Walton Goggins does, 
I think he does a really good job in his role. And there's a scene where he's he's praying for this boy, and he's praying that he'll get better because they're not going to bring him to a, to a doctor. And he you know he starts screaming, "Get out!" And he starts speaking in tongues. And it it is this like this moment you're there, and in one sense you feel like this fear because someone is yelling and doing something that is strange but you also get the sense that he is completely confident that he is interacting with the holy spirit in that moment and so i i I wish there were some more instances like that one and Holton and savage do kind of touch on the different ways that that kind of religious or spiritual certainty can manifest themselves in various people. So for Goggins's character, obviously, there's this this unwavering certainty, right? Like he's he's dead certain that this is uh, a unique way of approaching God is to, is to handle snakes and to, uh, as he says, respect the serpent, but don't cower to the serpent. And and kind of the way that that informs an entire religious praxis where the you know the idea is that you do adopt an entire posture towards uh towards god and towards the spiritual that is one of that's almost adversarial there's you know there's something that we don't understand and that we're a little bit afraid of but we still meet it with a level of confidence and that's not necessarily <laughs> what uh, uh, you and I would say is a healthy form of relating to God, but it's interesting to see how Poulton and Savage kind of use that posture to create uh, an atmosphere around the film that suggests an entire spiritual environment. So that's interesting. I wish there had been more digging into that if there had been less emphasis on as you say the the plot which mostly involves this romantic triangle between Mara her fiance and uh somebody who she feels a lot more uh romantic affection towards that kind of becomes the focus kind of to the detriment of the spiritual elements of the film because we kind of already know how that story ends where there's one person who's sort of torn between the demands of her community represented by a fiance and following her heart, which is represented by another person. That's a very old story. And it's a little bit cliched to bring it into this one because we kind of already know how that's going to play out. What we don't know how something's going to play out is when we see uh, Mara handle a serpent herself we don't know how that's going to turn out. And I think that's where them that follow really has the opportunity for greatness. And I think in that particular moment and a couple of others, it does achieve a very worthwhile, very fresh take on its subject matter that we haven't seen before from other films. And I would like to see a little bit more in films. And I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that in this film in particular, even though it does achieve that at certain high points. I think I think part of the approach it does work. And as I was watching this movie, you know, this community is unhealthy. It's not a good place. At the same time, the script seems to want to make it make it less sinister and more 
uh, I don't know, normalized among the characters. And so obviously we've talked about this a couple times. This is a male-dominated uh, group. And there's one conversation with Olivia Coleman, and she does I think she does a really great job throughout this movie. And she's talking about how she had this rough life and she met her husband who introduced her to this group and she found stability. And then she speaks of how everybody needs a shepherd. And, you know, obviously we, we all need direction. And as Christians, we would say we need direction from God. We need direction within our church community. But then she goes a step farther and she talks about how the husband is is really like this individual who's almost disciplining uh, his wife and almost uh, training her like he would train a child. And so we simultaneously see how this group might have helped people, but also has very much contributed to uh, pain and to suffering. And then I mentioned Goggins's character, and I, I, I like his character and how he's conceived because he's not a good person, but he doesn't become this mustache twirling villain. He doesn't go over the edge. He does take opportunities to defend his daughter, but then, right, there comes points when he's, when he's putting serpents on their hands. He's having them hold them. So there is this kind of line. And I think maybe that's a part of, uh, where the, where the film is strong, part of that comes from the cast and them kind of living within those characters and maybe even bringing out things that the script is not necessarily emphasizing. And I, I think that works. And as you mentioned too, Kevin, I, I love seeing stories like this and stories about religion, especially stories that kind of help us to understand belief. And I'm not sure where the writers, the directors, uh, where where they're at in terms of their relationship to a group like like this. Did they grow up around a group like this? Were they in a group like this? But the film definitely comes across as someone who thought this was an interesting story, an interesting group, and was familiar with it, but didn't necessarily mine into some of these bigger ideas that could have made this film really kind of pop. With this film, you don't need a big plot you're dealing with more emotion and uh, I think the opposite kind of happened here you know a little less emotion and probably a little more plot than it needed yeah uh, and Poland and Savage they do they they do seem to be very perceptive about the the sorts of people the types of people maybe that are attracted to this sort of practice we see we get the sense I guess from the way, these characters are presented to us in the way they are filmed, that this is a community of lost souls that has formed around uh, Walton Goggins's Pastor Lemuel. Uh, Sister Slaughter, who is played by Olivia Coleman, which is, if you are familiar with Coleman from other films, it's a little bit unexpected to uh, have her speaking with you know this Appalachian twang rather than her British accent, but she is very good in this film. But you know, she has a spider tattoo on her neck. Uh, Mara's uh, husband-to-be also speaks about how he lived an entire lifetime before finding this snake-handling community and how that kind of brought him out of a very dark place in his life. And Poulton and Savage do seem very perceptive about how uh, this sort of belief system does attract 
yearners, those who long for uh, contact with the divine, long for for some meaning, and and long for something that transcends just mere ritual, something that kind of gives them some skin in the game, such as snake handling in this instance. Uh, And that hunger for the numinous, I guess, is something that Polton Savage do locate within this context, although it does seem like they didn't, like you said, mine that as much as they could have uh, for items of interest. Listeners, that is our review of Britt Polton and Daniel Savage's Them That Follow. If you get a chance to catch this film, we would love to hear your thoughts. It's a smaller film, so it's getting a rather limited release. It's going to be starting off in uh, some major metropolitan areas on August 9th and then maybe branching out to other areas and on-demand later on but but this is a film whose thematic interests definitely intersect with a large portion of our audience so we are very curious to hear what everyone thinks of it but for now wade it's time to close things out with a discussion of our recommendations things from the world of television or film that we would recommend for our listeners what do you have for us this week so I I kind of had to do this. I saw probably in the last maybe three months, I saw for the first time the 1968 film from uh, Sergio Leone, Once Upon a Time in the West. And so I had to do that because we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in the West is a movie. It stars Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda about – the the change that's coming over that territory and how the world is in transition. And, of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is playing with that title and you know other titles that have that Once Upon a Time signifier on it. Uh, he's also playing, Tarantino's playing with the idea, as we mentioned, of time changing and what does that do. This is a, an incredible movie. The way that Leon shoots this is uh, it's just fantastic. You can almost feel the sand in the sun on you. You get these stretches uh, of just long shots of characters kind of observing or watching each other or or in quiet motion. There's really a lot to kind of dissect with this movie. But if our listeners haven't had a chance to check this out, uh, definitely do that. Once Upon a Time in the West, a classic spaghetti western uh, from 1968. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in the West, maybe the best western of all time. Uh, There's a lot of competition for that title, obviously, but I sure do love Once Upon a Time in the West. It's definitely my favorite of Leon's films. Uh, He made a lot of good ones, but... That one, just for the love, the sheer scope of it, and also the performances. I love Fonda in the film, and of course, he was famously playing against type as this, you know, very, very nasty villain, as opposed to sort of the the do-gooder that we all know from, you know, Twelve Angry Men. Uh, I don't know. I think it's just a brilliant instance of casting against type. Brilliantly shot. Brilliantly cast. I just love it to pieces, so that's a very, very good pick. Uh, My recommendation for this week is also from the 1960s, and it's definitely... uh, It's it's not as 
shall we say, uh, as as epic or as large scale as something like What's Upon in the West. It's 1964's The Night Walker, directed by William Castle. And if you hear Castle's name, you're already thinking of a very specific kind of pulpy, slightly low-budget genre picture. Uh, this one is one that I had kind of almost forgotten about until uh, somebody I follow on Twitter happened to mention it. And I went back and checked it out again. And it's uh, very underrated. There's a lot of interesting stuff that Castle does with filmic techniques. It's almost like a a low-budget, grungy Hitchcock film. It's also notable because it stars Barbara Stanwyck in her final film role. She went on to act in various TV projects, but The Nightwalker was her last role on the silver screen. And as longtime listeners know, I'm a big Barbara Stanwyck fan, so I can't help but recommend it on those grounds alone. It's a little bit a little bit cheesy, but it's just the right kind of cheese. And I think it's very effective at what it sets out to do, which is to tell the story of a woman kind of losing touch on the boundaries between uh, her nightmares and her reality. I think that I don't want to talk much more about it to give too much away, but if you're in the mood for something that's a little bit less serious-minded and a little bit more just a nice little genre picture, The Night Walker's for you. Hey, that sounds pretty great. I have not... Uh, I don't. I've I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. I don't, I don't even know if I've ever seen a trailer or anything like that. So, uh, definitely sounds like a good pick, listeners. I want to remind you all to rate and review the show. That's the end of our episode, but not necessarily the end of your responsibility. No, I'm just joking. But I would love for you to rate and review our show on iTunes. It helps get the word out. Just go to iTunes. Just search "Seeing and Believing," and you can give us a star rating. You can also just type in a review. That would be incredible. That is our show for the week. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Seeing and Believing. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com, our fearless producers, Jonathan Clausen. Every week, he helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. Until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.